Good morning, everyone. I'm Dr. Emma Morton, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to our ninth Talk BD event, or good evening if you're joining us from the UK. Um, thank you all for your patience while the team took a break over summer. Um, we try to practice what we preach here at Crest BD, which includes maintaining a good work-life balance. Um, but I know that everyone in the team really values the chance to give back to the community with these webinars. And personally, we all learn something new every time that we do it. Um, so we're all really excited to be returning today with um, this topic, which has been requested a lot by um, the community. And we have some great guest speakers lined up for the next few months as well, which I'll tell you about at the end. If you've never joined us before, again, welcome. Uh, CRESPD is a research organisation that academics, clinicians, people with lived experience of bipolar disorder and their supports are all involved with. And our mission is to um, develop new research and share that with the community about ways to optimise health and quality of life for people with bipolar disorder. Um, Talk BD is a series of online community gatherings that we started uh, as a way to provide people with some extra support and practical tips for coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, however, if you're a support person, a healthcare provider, um, or somebody who's simply curious about ways to manage stress associated with finances during this time, you are still welcome to um, be involved. Um, we began Talk BD in March this year and have covered topics like managing anxiety and depression, substance use, um, and sleeping well. Uh, and you can watch these recordings on our talkbd.live page. We've had a particular focus on how some of these quality of life areas are being impacted by the disruption to routine and additional stress of COVID-19 and ways to adapt your existing wellness strategies to these changes or learn something new. Today, we'll be talking about a subject that has been a source of significant stress for many people during this time, um, money. A uh, Mental Health Commission of Canada survey in April this year found that along with worries of, about health, uh, anxiety about finances was one of the primary reasons people were feeling stress. It's important to note at the start that we won't be giving specific financial advice, although we do have some resources that we can share at the end about where you might be able to find more specific support with budgeting. Um, what we'll be talking about today are the ways that financial problems might be particularly tied up with bipolar mood symptoms and strategies that can help uh, people regain some control over their spending and cope with those financial worries. So we have a guest speaker today, Dr. Thomas Richardson, a clinical psychologist and visiting academic at the University of Southampton. And we also have Victoria Maxwell, who has been with Crest BD since inception and um, who's been a pleasure to co-host with all the times that I've been doing these webinars. Um, we'll do some quick introductions and then I'll quickly run through some housekeeping before I hand over the mic to Victoria and Dr. Richardson to talk about this topic. So first of all, I'm joining you from mainland Vancouver. Um, I'm originally from Australia. This was supposed to be my first Canadian Thanksgiving, um, which hasn't gone quite to plan with social distancing, but my family made the best of it. I currently have a fridge full of um, something that my husband and I were really excited to try, which baffled us as Australians, which is pumpkin as a, a sweet food. <laughs> um, so I've tried pumpkin cheesecake, pumpkin donut, pumpkin um, pumpkin casserole with marshmallows on it. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced, but it's been fun. Um, in my academic side of life, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia, 
I study digital health tools and quality of life in mood disorders, and I've been with the Crest BD team since 2015. Uh, in the past, I've also worked as a psychologist across a range of settings. Um, so I'll now pass the mic to um, Dr. Richardson to introduce himself. Uh, we'd love to hear what you do as a clinician slash academic, as well as the things that you do to relax in your downtime. Hi, so yeah, Tom Richardson here. So I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, so I've been qualified and working in a NHS, National Health Service Community Mental Health Team for adults in uh, Portsmouth, which is on the south coast of the UK. Um, and I've, I'm lucky enough to be able to do research as part of that. And that's where my link with the University of Southampton comes in. So I work with people uh, with a range of mental health problems. Um, but bipolar is something that I've always been interested in um, as someone who has lived experience of it as well and live with it very much. Um, to do my downtime, I've got three young kids, so what's downtime? But, um, well, actually, I could probably just turn or show you, actually, They're my drums in my office. That's one of the things that I do to relax, um, which is really good for the stress. You know, it's very cathartic. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely one thing I do to try and relax. Fantastic. We should have a um, Crest BD jam sesh with you and um, Dr. Greg Murray, who's also a, an academic who plays grom, drums. <laughs> Victoria? Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks, Emma. And uh, great to uh, see you, Thomas. Uh, I've been with Crest BD as a peer researcher since um, oh, 2007. So I've been sort of with it from the beginning. Uh, really found it really uh, satisfying and fulfilling. And I'm also a mental health speaker and a performer. I do my own um, one-person shows about my own lived experience with bipolar disorder, anxiety, and the lovely psychosis. <laughs> uh, and then on my downtime, well, I've just started uh, sewing again, and I just got a vintage sewing machine, 1958 Singer one from a friend, actually. And so it's really great. I've only made like a little bag, and my next project is to hem my drapes. So wish me luck. <laughs> Good luck. I've seen your sewing machine on Twitter. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, so a couple of quick housekeeping points. Today we have people joining us via Zoom, live stream via Facebook. Um, and so we're taking questions in a number of ways. People have submitted anonymous questions beforehand via the CRESPD website. Um, you can also enter your questions in the Zoom Q&A box at the bottom of your screen and um, or you can enter them on Facebook. And after the main presentation, we'll try to answer as many of them as we can. So with that, I will hand over to Tom to um, tell us a bit more about money and stress. Okay, so thanks very much for having me everyone. It's always nice to talk uh, um, things like this where I actually reach out to service users, people with bipolar disorder rather than, you know, an academic paper that gets read by a few people, you know, it's really important, I think, to just talk about this to people who mean it most. I think I'll start off just by saying a bit about money and mental health generally. So there's been research for a long time that unfortunately people who are from deprived backgrounds, you know, what we'd call, what we term low socioeconomic status, people who come from poor areas, deprived areas, are more prone to sort of a range of different mental health problems. Um, and there's always been a little bit of that chicken and egg Thing about which came first is it that actually being born into sort of a poor household you're more exposed to risk factors for mental health problems um, is it that if you have mental health problems you know you struggle financially you might have to move into sort of neighborhoods that aren't what you'd like where you'd like to live 
So one of the things I first did, so I, I looked at all the research, so it's what's called a meta-analysis, where you kind of get all the papers and try and statistically combine them all to see just how strong the relationship is between debt specifically. So I wanted to kind of think, well, how about debt specifically? How important is this? Um, so I kind of pulled this all together, a few studies, um, and showed that sort of overall people in debt, problem debt, are like three times as likely to have a mental health problem. Or looking at it the other way, if you've got a mental health problem, you're more than three times likely to be in problem debt. Um, and the, there was relationships for specific problems such as problem drinking and um, depression. But there's that classic, you know, chicken and egg thing I said, where a lot of the research is just at one time point. So we know there's a relationship, but we don't know what came first. Um, and the first kind of few studies I did were with students here in the UK, because we basically had a situation where literally from one year to the next, the amount of tuition fees that were paid literally tripled from one year to the next. So what I did was a cohort study where I looked at the people before and after this, and I followed them up at their first year at university and saw how their mental health changed. There wasn't actually a big impact of the increase in tuition fees, but what we did find is a really big impact about people who are reporting that they struggled to pay the bills, they couldn't afford to heat their house, they had to borrow money. People who were broke basically and were struggling to get by. That had an impact on their overall mental health, anxiety, um, problematic eating, so you know, risk factors for um, problems such as anorexia and bulimia, and also with alcohol. Um, but what was, in terms of which came first, there was definitely some evidence that the struggling financially made things get worse over time, unfortunately. But it also, to an extent, worked both ways. So for anxiety and for eating, um, it worked both ways, where struggling financially worsened this over time, but those who at the start of the study were more anxious or higher risk for an eating disorder, their finances also seemed to sort of get worse over time. Um, so I've kind of moved on from that to thinking as a psychologist, you know, I can't change how many much tuition fees people are paying and I can't change, you know, the situation with COVID and um, the, how much people are struggling really with money at the moment. But as a psychologist, what I've researched is what psychologically links money problems and mental health problems. So we found, we kind of looked at all the research and we found that some of the really key things were people who kind of take, take an active coping. So actually, you know, actively trying to take steps to resolve your financial situation, you know, rather than burying your head in the sand and avoiding, which we all know is easy to do when you're depressed. Um, people who felt like they had a little bit of, sort of agency, a bit of control over it. Um, and self-esteem was a really important thing as well. So um, if it really knocked your self-esteem and you've knocked your confidence, that had a big impact. Um, and one of the, the research studies we did as well was so this isn't with bipolar specifically. We found that actually what linked struggling to pay the bills and you know problems such as depression, anxiety, stress was A, hope or hopelessness, and B, shame. So actually our research showed that actually what's kind of more important than how much debt you're in or how much you're struggling to pay the bills is how hopeful or hopeless you feel about it and how ashamed you feel about it. And I can't work on the financial side of things, but very much part of my work, I think, to work on the hope around it and the shame around it. So, go. Victoria, did you have any um, thoughts about that kind of chicken and egg relationship? Yeah, I think that's um, uh, really, it, it hits home around the hopelessness and the shame. 
and that it becomes a vicious cycle. And uh, not speaking specifically about bipolar disorder, but particularly just about, uh, especially if you are, for me, when I was dealing with the acute symptoms, uh, there was that cycle of hopelessness around, uh, can I have, do I have enough money? And the fact that I don't have enough money, am I in debt? And I was seeing that my, um, my symptoms were impacting my ability to actually earn money. So it exacerbated the anxiety and the depression. Um, so it was really important for me to get supports around me that could offer me that sense of agency and inroads to take action. And then as my self-efficacy increased, my self-esteem increased, my hope increased, my debt didn't immediately disappear, but it did slowly start to um, decrease because I was able to take action. But it was the social supports, like you were saying, Thomas, about um, my health providers and my parents and family and friends. So it, it all resonates with me uh, really strongly. Thank you. And a nice kind of example there of how you managed to turn that kind of vicious cycle into something a little bit more positive, even if your financial situation was difficult. So um, I'll come on a little bit more to that. But should I just say a bit about what I found for bipolar disorder specifically? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you know, bipolar disorder, it's one of these things where we all kind of assume that when you're manic, you spend a lot. And I know that I certainly have. Um, and working in a mental health team, it's kind of, you know, assume that, well, yeah, when people are manic, they spend a lot. It's in the diagnostic criteria um, for a manic episode that that's one of the potential impulsive things you do. And yet, actually, there's not really a lot of research. Um, that's when I looked at all the research, I found there was nothing about debt and bipolar disorder specifically, which I found a little bit hard to believe. So that's why I kind of set out to do it just from my own experience and my, my patients, my service users, knowing how it impacted them. So um, we did kind of a, a relatively small study um, where we looked at kind of 40 people and we looked at them sort of four months apart so we could kind of see what came first. Because you know, there's a bit of research saying that people with bipolar disorder are a bit high risk for gam gambling problems, for example, um, and maybe a bit poor, might have struggled with finances because they're impulsive, but there wasn't a lot as to the kind of the why. Um, and I kind of had this hunch that it, it's, not all, it's not all completely random what people impulsively spend on and there might be some patterns and some psychological things going on so we we interviewed people as well so we did this study over time points we saw what created what but we interviewed people as well and there were some themes there about impulsive shopping which you know isn't a surprise um but one which did come up which i wasn't expecting was about excessive generosity within that so some people just showered their loved ones with gifts um other people gave loads of money away to charity that they couldn't really afford one of the things that came up was comfort spending, you know, when people were down as well, you know, or anxious. So I think that's the important thing. It's not just about mania when people might spend, it might also be related to depression. Um, there was kind of this theme where people, when their mood was going up, might spend and then their mood crashes and, the, you know, the penny drops and they start to really regret it and feel guilty and start to really, you know, ruminate about it and might feel quite down about it. Um, probably won't come as a surprise to the people watching, but people also said that they were, when they were down or anxious, especially, very find it very hard to face their finances. You know, people saying they just kind of let their bills pile up and then chuck them in the bin. Um, 
finding it very hard just to concentrate on finances, make a budget when you're depressed. So when we were looking at over time, um, what we found that actually people were more likely to spend kind of a few months later, um, it wasn't actually to do with manic sort of symptoms, specifically depression, anxiety and stress you know, those predicted more compulsive spending four months later. So it suggests it's kind of this comfort spending. Um, for anxiety, you know, uh, Victoria said about a vicious cycle. There was a bit of a vicious cycle with anxiety where anxiety seemed to predict compulsive spending and vice versa. So I think probably people are spending as a way to cope with anxiety and then they kind of worry about, you know, the fact that they've impulsively spend. It was very interesting that um, people, that mindfulness, people who, you know, a measure of mindfulness that also predicted, you know, people who weren't as um, mindful, weren't as in the moment as present, they were more likely to kind of impulsively spend. And I think the final thing that was interesting is that, so there's a lot of research about people with bipolar disorder often having very high standards for themselves, you know, very high goals, achievement focused. And when you're manic, um, you have these sort of very high goals, it might be setting up a business or stuff around work or your relationships and those kind of thoughts around these kind of goal achievement they also kind of link to um, impulsive spending um, I, I do have a diagram which kind of explains it all I think it's a it's a little bit complicated bear with me but it might be easier than hearing me explain it so I'll just run through this quickly so financial difficulties and then plus financial wellness so this basically means you feel like you're in a bad financial situation. This leads to anxiety and avoiding finances. So there's a bit of a vicious cycle there. But then there's also this cycle where we found actually that struggling to pay the bills, you know, kind of counterintuitively actually predicted more impulsive spending. We think that's because people have these thoughts around, I want to achieve. Maybe they make a plan to make money. You know, I'm going to dig myself out of that financial hole by making a get rich quick scheme, a new business idea their mood increases and maybe they're spending to try and actually dig themselves out of a financial hole. Something, Victoria, which you, you know, alluded to, um, it, it's hard to hold down a job sometimes if you are really unwell. So that's something that's important there. Um, and we found it probably relates to what I was saying about self-esteem. So people who were relying on benefits or had to go without things such as um, clothes and you know, had to go without paying for the utility bills that kind of, I th we think, led to depression because it just really lowered people's self-esteem. They felt a bit rubbish about themselves. It knocked their confidence. And that kind of led to um, sort of depression and anxiety um, and stress as well. When you're really anxious, when you're really depressed, it's very hard to be in the moment because you're lost up here ruminating, right? So I think when people are, um, in that state, they, they're not paying attention as much, you're more likely to spend more than you'd plan, but also there's this comfort spending, which might lead to compulsive spending. And the final cycle, sorry, are psychologists like boxes and arrows. Um, sometimes people spent and then they regretted it. And then there was this possible vicious cycle where actually thoughts around feeling quite dependent on others, like I'm worried how people see me, I need to make sure people close to me appreciate me, that, actually led to compulsive spending. So I think it's probably a cycle where you feel guilty that you spent money um, and then you kind of worry about the impact on your family. So you kind of buy them gifts so that, you know, you don't have to kind of you feel a little bit better about it. So yeah, lots of kind of 
potential things there. And I think that's the thing I'd say. This is for bipolar specifically, and it's um, it's complicated. There's lots of things going on there. Um, but I think, yeah, so this this diagram, Sean, sums it up nicely. I'm worried about our financial situation. Let's buy something really cool to take your mind off the stress. I mean, that kind of, that actually, that's a kind of the awkward Yeti, which does these brilliant cartoons. Um, that kind of summarizes it quite clearly, I think. I think the main thing that really stuck out for me, actually, is that I don't think it's random what people spend on when they when they are manic. It's not coming out of nowhere. I think there is a reason for it. There's a goal behind it. It might seem like a slightly, um, you know, impulsive one or grandiose, but I think to the person, there's probably a reason to it. There's probably a pattern. So I'll just give an example from my own experience. When I was 18, the night before I ended up in hospital, I went um, into a shop and I brought like these, Af you saw the drums, uh, these African djembe, so these like really big, you know, massive drums. I bought five at once. And to everyone, you know, that probably seemed like a completely random thing to buy. But for me, that was part of a bigger plan around a business that I was setting up. So in my mind, it kind of fitted into this kind of need to achieve and actually to dig myself out of a financial situation because I was worried about paying for uni. So it was kind of spending money to try and make money. Didn't really go that way. Victoria, do you have any thoughts about that diagram? Yeah, um, I think it it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's. I could probably go in all of those little directions and I probably have at one time or another. Um, one thing that I uh, didn't um, uh, hear and I'm not sure from me, what I also found was that my anxiety actually kept my financial spending in check sometimes because I was so, and I think my, my experience uh, from childhood too, that um, there was so much anxiety around spending that even the impulse to spend, my impulsivity came out in other ways, um, not, just, not just with spending. Um, so my anxiety and my worry about uh, I'll be poor um, almost helped me in a certain way. Although I threw that out because I had binge eating disorder and it didn't matter how much I spent on food. I just completely ignored that. And I, you know, buy as much as I needed to binge in order to soothe and comfort. Um, and so I saw that. And then I spent a lot of money on, um, you know, designer clothes and all this stuff that I, you know, would rarely wear. And, and that was tied to my sort of that flamboyant part of being manic. Um, and then also it was, it, it's hard because some of it was also part of uh, being able to uh, distill between who am I, because that flamboyancy of mania is also partially uh, pathologizing some of my own personality around, you know, being able to, as you see, I like color. <laughs> it becomes like an exaggerated um, version of yourself, doesn't exactly, it? You're like a exactly. caricature of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think it was really hard to face and that's where some of the shame came in and also some of the resistance because I needed um, my health providers to really uh, be sensitive to um, not just pathologizing all my behaviors and chalking it up to bipolar disorder, um, mm. instead recognizing the uniqueness of who I am and asking what parts of my spending were 
unhelpful. And I think the, the biggest part was that when I, I was putting food and almost everything on credit cards because I wasn't working, and then I would be just impulsively spending with, with food and, and so finding practical ways to actually deal with that. So we'll probably get deep into strategies as we answer some more questions, but I know Thomas that you had one or two important tips to share. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for um, sharing that, Victoria. And yeah, just to say, you know, this is what the research has shown. And I think that diagram represents what, what I found is all of the potential mechanisms between money and mental health and bipolar disorder. You know, and there, there's lots of different things going on. There's debt and there's, you know, struggling about money, there's impulsive spending. So I'm not saying it applies to everyone, you know. And your point about anxiety, you know, um, absolutely. I think uh, some, sometimes it can maybe be helpful to be a little bit worried about finances, but I think for a lot of people it goes too far. You know, when you go too anxious, you kind of just shut off and. And, and and that was the case for me. I mean, I was paralyzed by fear and anxiety. So mm -hmm. although it curbed some of my spending, it decreased my quality of life completely. So I think um, just kind of as, as a psychologist, like I said at the start, I'm not someone who can give kind of financial advice. I wouldn't pretend to know much about kind of that. Um, but in terms of just from what my research has shown, I think a few practical tips. I, I think just, just kind of taking small steps, as, as Victoria said there, you know, just to try and get yourself, increase the hope, increase uh, little steps, feeling like you can take a little bit of control about what's going on. So it might just be, you know, you've got 10 bills to sort out, don't do them all at once. Do the first one. Try and deal with that. You know, give yourself a high five and then try and do another one. You know, making those small steps just to try and reverse the situation and improve things a little bit as much as, you know, as much as you can. Trying to get help. I, you know, I've put some organisations about some information about money and mental health kind of advice um, on the resources. But this is UK specific. I'm not sure about Canada, but, you know, if there are any kind of charities or any where you can get advice about money, try and get advice about that just because again that's going to help with the hope and also talking to people and it doesn't have to be a professional even just talking to you know friends or family or people at work about it will really help with that shame because like i said that's a really strong driver of the, the depression and anxiety and shame doesn't help you cope productively it, it makes you shut away um so just talking about it i think can help and hopefully other people hearing this here will hopefully help kind of pour some cold water over that shame. Um, I, I think, you know, trying to think about what, you know, if we're sticking to a budget, what can I do that's important to me, important for my mental health, helps me connect with others, you know, gets me up in the morning that doesn't involve money, you know? So just thinking practically, okay, I've got to, I've got, I like to see my friends, but I've got to look after money. Can I have them over for lunch rather than meeting them in a restaurant? Um, okay, I've got to look after the budget. So what can I do with my kids that's still fun, even if I don't have the money to take them to the cinema? You know, just thinking about that, what what kind of makes boosts my mood that doesn't involve a lot of spending? Because there is stuff, you know, not not everything costs money, you know, even just going for a jog, that's free and that can do wonders to boost your mood a little bit, you know. Um, I think one, one of the things is just thinking about practically ways to put barriers to just make it a little bit hard you know we talk about i talk to a lot of my service users about this idea of urge surfing whatever the urge is including the urge to spend it goes up and up and up until you feel like i can't i've got to give in i can't go any longer but actually if you just ride out that wave and sit with it it will go down um, and that applies to impulsively spending as well so putting the bit of distance 
um, what's been termed here positive friction, just to make it a little bit easier to not act on that urge. So here in the UK, if you gam um, a few banks have started to add gambling blocks where you have to kind of wait for 48 hours before you can turn it off, you know, again, for that kind of that urge surfing principle. Um, Technology is really bad, and I did this, not very scientific, but I did a Twitter survey, a Twitter poll for people with bipolar disorder about does technology, like contactless cards and websites, make it easier or harder to impulse spend? And 80% said it makes it easier to impulsively spend. And I think that's the problem is technology is making it uh, easier, more convenient to spend contactless and you know websites and apps, remember your card details. And that's fine for most people, that's convenient. But if you're impulsively spending, that's a problem. So, um, you know, just think about, can I not let cards remember my, um, my card details? Um, I often suggest to people have a backup really old basic phone without internet. So if you are starting to go manic, you've got that to call people, but you can't, you know, you can't spend stuff on your apps or online. Um, there's also a few kind of, useful apps i put one on there called um i think it might only work with computers but it's called um icebox where it replaces for an hour the the shopping basket on a web browser with an ice like an icebox so that you have to wait for an hour by which time hopefully that urge to buy something has passed and mm. um, i think some people might find that actually just kind of putting it in a basket might sort of scratch that itch a little bit these are all really good suggestions. I know we've got a couple of resources to, to share at the end, which will tell people where to find these. Um, but I really want us to have time to get into some questions. So I might ask Victoria to share, you know, one or two things that have worked for her and then we'll um, get to the questions. Yeah. Um, well, one of them was a really big shift and not everybody has this opportunity, but part of it was I moved back home. And so to be able to share the burden of uh, the cost of living uh, and uh, I shared my, the debt. I didn't share the paying off of the debt with my parents, but I shared the story and sort of felt the shame. And then we created some sort of plan of how I would repay that and things like that. So that was, um, it still felt very shameful to have to move back home. And there were other reasons as well, um, but also to, to disclose and sort of confess that I had this debt on my credit card and it was a lot of debt for me and, and even for my mom and dad. Um, but having their, that support was really important. And I think what was also important was that when I, and I'm thinking about it that, um, and I don't do it, but I had this idea that uh, having an agreement uh, with my mom when she saw me going manic or depressed that she was allowed to sort of she was the one that could point it out to me and um, I feel like now this was way before the sort of internet and stuff it would be a great way if there's a partnership agreement with whatever support loved one who is able to change passwords on certain shopping carts or things like that so that it may prevent someone from uh, actually ac ask, uh, accessing that. And that, that goes a long way. I mean, it, it's not necessarily for everybody because it can feel really intrusive and um, it loses a sense of agency. But for me, it's when, um, if that mania is interfering with my insight, um, I'm not always at that point where I'm at uh, 
a shopping cart area where I go, ooh, I need to slow down uh, if I'm already past that point. So anyway, those are a couple of things. Thank you for sharing that, Victoria. I'll um, open up our first question. This is coming from uh, somebody who supports a family member with bipolar disorder, um, which I know we have a couple. Um, if people are attending that today, it's, it's um, interesting to comment on their experiences as well because money is a shared um, issue for, for most families and couples. Um, so this person is asking, um, when my wife has a bipolar episode, she becomes very generous and is given away large sums of money which we couldn't afford to lose. Um, she's always been a generous person, but when she gives away a donation or goes Christmas shopping, I worry she might spend too much again. Um, what are some things we can do to stop generosity from getting out of hand? And also, um, how can I regain some trust that she won't spend all that money? All right. So I'm sorry to hear that, you know, that, that does sound um, difficult. I think what, what you're saying there fits very much with the theme that I identified in my research about excessive generosity, which I wasn't actually expecting to kind of find. Um, I think thinking about kind of what, trying to plan together about when the high risk times are and what maybe triggers this off, sets this off. So you said about, you know, Christmas maybe, um, times of year, so you can try and maybe make a plan together, identify those early warning signs, think about, you know, can I go out to the shop maybe just with cash? And I think agreeing this when you're well, uh, when, when, she's, when she's okay and when this isn't an issue, and having some kind of shared agreement arrangement is just a lot better for you both to kind of um, buy into, and then that will kind of hopefully help you sort of trust. But I think it's important to think about, you know, can she do little bits? Can you have a small, you know, amount that you could donate to charity every month, if you, if you can afford that, just so she feels like she is being, you know, helping and thinking about, well, okay, so th this is well very much links to what I'm saying about there's actually a theme to it, there's a reason for it, and um, clearly you, your wife's um, excessive generosity is coming from a very nice place of wanting to be kind to people and help people. So thinking about, well, what can I do that doesn't involve a lot of money that helps people, you know, and what, what can I, whatever it is, helping to a friend out or volunteering, and what can I do that um, is kind and generous to people that doesn't involve money? Can I bake a cake? You know, little acts of kind of random acts of kindness that don't involve a lot of money that might scratch that itch without the need to spend more money than you can afford. I really like that reframe there about how it connects to values. Um, Victoria, any thoughts? Uh, no, I just would want to echo that idea of a shared agreement ahead of time to so sort of um, notice what the warning signs is. That's sort of what my mom and I did. So, and she has bipolar disorder, so she knew them very intimately and, uh, and being able to find ways of saying, okay, so this is what I see, what would you like me to do? Um, and then having sort of plan A, plan B, plan C, sort of plan A is when maybe I'm still pretty cognizant of my behaviors. Plan B is maybe when I'm beginning to lose a little bit of insight. And then plan C is like, okay, let's, you know, let's put every, you know, freeze the credit cards uh, when I've, you know, completely lost uh, insight. Um, and hopefully it won't get to that place. So um, I think that's, um, I think that kinds of communication and I think it also can build trust and also framing it that it's a uh, um, progress, not perfection. So you're going to keep improving or changing or tweaking that uh, process. And also then um, 
one thing that was really important was um, uh, acknowledging the wins that I that I have. So when I don't do something that I typically would have, that would have negatively impacted me or the wins that I have, if it's about decreasing a debt, those things that are, are really important to be acknowledged. Like just the other day where my husband acknowledged that I was managing the money quite well and I felt really proud. <laughs> right, so. Yeah. That's, um, I think that actually answers in part another question that we had about the, the opposite side of that coin, Victoria. Um, uh, we had a, a question saying, I find it embarrassing to ask somebody to keep my spending in check. And it's like telling them not to trust me or that I can't be trusted at times. Um, and any tips on how to approach this, which I think you've given a couple of really good ones already. Um, I was wondering, Thomas, if you had anything to add no, to that. I think it's just about having this discussion before it, it comes because it's hard to have it when you're un, unwell. So when you're stable, just kind of, yeah, like like Victoria's saying, and you know, a shared sort of plan, a shared agreement of what might happen. And, you know, th there is nothing to be ashamed of, you know, like, like Victoria was saying, it, there is a certain point where you do lose insight and you don't realise you're manic and you don't, you know, the, the spending the money feels like a really sensible idea at the time. So, um yeah, I think there is a, always a time where actually you do need um, someone to help, you know, put the brakes on, whether that's a friend or family or if it's possible, you know, um, the creditor. And I, I would add that I think this is where support groups come in really handily to decrease the shame, because I think um, that sense of aloneness and being this sort of blight, uh, instead of finding out that, okay, so this is actually a common behavior as a result of a condition that I have. It's not because I lack, you know, sensible sensibility or intelligence or anything. Um, it, there's a drive uh, that I may not have as much um, ability uh, to control, but I can increase my awareness. And I find that when I'm talking to other people, like just this form, I think can take off, take a lot of that shame away. So I, I, I don't know if it was Brene Brown or, or someone, but how shame really um, grows in secrecy. Um, and I think that's why some of the 12 step programs are so successful because um, people talk about uh, their stories. Thank you. Um, this next question is, I believe, about um, ways to tell apart the difference between impulsive spending that might be perhaps unhealthy um, and what might be actually appropriate. So the questioner has asked, is it possible for those of us with the disorder to see the end result of our sometimes excessive, excessive expenditures? My hobby is building model ships and I always justify my purchases by claiming that having the parts to hand prevents delays and frustrations but often the models are not in fact ready for the items okay all right that's a that's a good question um well i, I think it, it it's up to you isn't it about what you know everyone is different and everyone's going to have a different amount of disposal income so uh there is no real kind of threshold i can tell you i think it's um thinking about what for you is excessive or you know if, if there's other people who sharing the finances and the household it's about having that kind of shared agreement because um, I think I think you'll probably know when it's too much. I think people know what the limit is. And, you know, this diagram, I think it often comes when you start to crash a bit and go low is when the penny drops and you might kind of realise. So 
I think you probably know where the line is. It is quite a difficult line to draw. Um, I think maybe a, a, a useful question that I often tell my terms to ask and to kind of ask, I ask myself is, do, do I have to have this like now, 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 right now, um, or can this wait until tomorrow, next week? Um, and if it, you know, buying this thing, right? And if it really can't wait at all, then maybe I'd ask yourself, mm, am I being a bit impulsive here? You know, because it, it's very rare that you need something straight away, you know, other than like food, if you have no food in the fridge, like there. So that's a good question, I think, to ask yourself, you know, can this wait until next week? If not, maybe this is a bit of a rash decision. Maybe I need to just press the pause button here. Victoria, any thoughts on that one? Um, yeah, I think um, there's almost two uh, uh, sort of topics. One is um, that something that doesn't have to do with mental illness, but being able to justify um, spending uh, on something that you may or may not need that doesn't have to do with sort of that overspending. And I think that's what you, Thomas, were saying is that um, it's, I think we all have an instinct of when we're telling the truth about ourselves or not. <laughs> um, and are we trying to reconcile that? Um, and then the other is where um, there's that impulsivity behind it. So I find that sometimes it has to do with the energy that's behind when I'm buying. So uh, there's times where it's, I'm buying, uh, and it doesn't feel urgent, but it's because I'm like going, oh, well, you know, it'd be really great to have. And, you know, I don't want other people to have it. And, you know, it, I, I will use it eventually. Um, I, I don't may not have the money right now, but it, it'll be okay, because I'll be able to, you know, find the money versus that other urgency that's more manic and it may even be the same amount of things that I'm buying but it's this sort of need and immediacy that I have to have it and there's almost a jump there's no thinking process about it it's from sort of see it need it buy it <laughs> and uh, so I think knowing those two differences and then being able to uh, pull back and then create a, a place of mindfulness. Um, I think that's it. Um, and being able to explain that to sort of loved ones. And, and it may be that you're, you know, looking at something that um, you are questioning your purchases. And so I think that's really good insight. Um, and to understand um, if you can sort of um, uh, sort of stand behind them and go, no, this is okay. Or no, maybe I need to question it and make different choices. So I think it, either way, it's a, a really good uh, opportunity. I think, you know, mindfulness, like you said, is a really important part of that because it's about just being a little bit more aware of those processes, being able to sit with those urges, identify them early. And, you know, that was one of the things we found in our research fueled in cost of spending is not being mindful. So one of the resources I've put on, as you'll see, is um, it's linked to some mindfulness resources I've developed um, in my NHS role. Um, but yeah, I think it's about the, yeah, the, the urge, like Victoria was saying, and looping back to that last question, you know, when he's saying it makes sense for me to have the bits with me, you know, I think to me that sounds like quite a kind of rational, logical planning ahead. Um, if it's like that sudden, right, I've got to get all of this stuff now, then maybe there's a mm -hmm. different driver behind it, as Victoria was mm -hmm. going to say. Um, 
The next question that I have is about kind of dealing with the aftermath of some of these issues. Person asks, I have bipolar disorder and a history of reckless spending. I've been stable for some time now and I've managed to pay off all my debts. Even so, I can't seem to understand the fact that I have enough money now. I'm still constantly scared of running out of money to the point where I stop myself from buying important things. Do you have any suggestions to deal with that fear? Okay, so it sounds like it's a little bit anxious that it's gonna happen again. Okay, no, that makes sense. Um, well done for kind of, you know, paying off the debt. And I, I, so I think trying to, if you haven't gone already, just trying to have a little bit of a budget where you can kind of maybe stick to that, maybe even put a little bit of money aside just so you feel like you've got kind of a bit of a, a bit of a uh, safety net um, or maybe a little pot that you can treat yourself with to a holiday or something, um, you know. But also I think it's just thinking about now, where is that line that I draw? Um, you know, like I said, it is a blurry line. Maybe there's someone who you know that um, knows you from when you were impulsively spending and maybe you can just try and work out, okay, this is okay to spend on this. If I go above this amount, you know, per day, per week, or it's impulsive, then I need to worry. So just actually kind of mapping out, having a bit, you know, like you, you might have like a relapse prevention plan for, for your mental health generally, kind of have it that for finances specifically like this is this is actually what i need to notice so i think if you've got it written down quite structured and quite clear that just may, might take away a little bit of that fear and that anxiety because um, it is okay to treat yourself um and it um yeah it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean you're becoming unwell um i so relate to this question and so first off awesome that you paid off those debts that's so great and i think um, recognizing that you're able to do that and seeing that as concrete evidence um, first uh, can be uh, helpful to boost your confidence. But I totally relate to that fear. Um, and I recently recognized that it was still holding me back. And so the two things that have helped me enormously is um, a friend of mine calls it know your numbers. So really understanding what my um, bank account uh, numbers are, what are my expenses, what's coming in and what's going out. So that I, so my fear that may be rational or irrational, if I don't, if I'm not clear on those numbers, I don't, uh, uh, I, I don't know whether my fear is rational or not. Um, and so having that and then being able to recognize, okay, so if there is extra money over here is um, $20. Uh, I don't know what that would be in pounds, but 10 pounds or 15 pounds or whatever um, per week or every two weeks or whatever it is that you can use. And then for me, it's been actually practicing intentionally spending on myself because I don't, I don't, I realize I, I don't even want to buy socks. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll wear two pairs of socks that have holes in them. So for me recently, it was actually buying some material and uh, a little cutter that I use for sewing. And it felt so good. And I knew I could afford it. So practicing, it's almost like exposure therapy, where if you're really nervous, try buying something really small, it could be a special kind of coffee, and see how you feel and see if anything bad happens, if the sky does fall down. And if it doesn't, like write it down as evidence. And that's been one of the best things that's really helped me. And I think also just um, 
you know, the, the diagram I showed about all those things that fuel like the comfort spending, like depression, anxiety, stress, I mean, that was for bipolar disorder, but I'd say exactly the same things fuel it in um, people without bipolar disorder, just probably to a lesser extent. So actually just to kind of normalize, make you not worry so much about it, maybe just ask other people, friends and family, like, do you ever kind of spend a bit of money and, um, um, you know, treating yourself a little bit more than you can afford, just because it just so you don't, you know, over pathologize that if I'm buying myself something nice, that means I'm unwell. Because you're not alone in that, with or without bipolar disorder. It's okay. It's it's not necessarily a sign that you're unwell. Thank you both. Um, there's really good tips in there about how to kind of really quite gently practice self-compassion, Victoria, which I really like. Um, the with the time that we have left, this will be our last question. Um, it's a quite a broad one but I think it's a really important one given that uh, what you found with your model Thomas um, could you give an example of how to feel hopeful about a financial problem yeah so you know I, I'm not gonna sit here and say that everything's rosy um, that'd be incredibly unique because it's a really difficult time especially with you know with COVID a lot of people are struggling there's a lot of uncertainty um, I think the way to feel hopeful is, like I said, trying to just take some small steps. Um, you know, we've got a financial journalist here who's set up a, a whole think tank around money, mental health, and I've given the link to that in the resources. And he, what he says, it applies in the UK context, probably in Canadians, there's no such thing as an unsolvable debt problem. Um, it might mean some really difficult choices have to be made. Um, but the, there is always stuff that can be done, I think. So just remind yourself that like, other people have got through it, other people have, um, you know, have problems where they even had to declare bankruptcy and bounce back. Um, so just trying to get some advice to take a few steps about what next, because that will help with the, um, the a little bit more clarity and certainty and maybe help with that bit more hope and a bit more shame, a bit less shame. and. Um, I think as well, it, when things are really difficult, it's really important, you know, we said about values, just sort of connecting in with what really matters to me, like how can I be a good friend, good at my job, a good father, a good daughter, a good whatever it is, even if I'm really struggling financially, you know, what part of it, money doesn't define who I am as a person, so what, what can I do? So just kind of connecting with that and um, yeah, I think another thing for Hope again, I'm just going to plug mindfulness because um, it's very easy for our minds to wander off when it comes to money into catastrophic worst case scenarios in the future. Um, and there might be some really difficult stuff coming down the line. And the question to ask yourself is, is it helpful for me to ruminate furiously about this now? Is, it, is this helpful when I'm just trying to sit here and enjoy my tea? You know, so trying to just take, you have to think about finances, of course, you have to think about what next, but you don't have to do it all the time. So just trying to be a little bit more present can really help that hope as well, I'd say. Um, I don't know if I can add anything to that. I think that's awesome, Thomas. Um, it, yeah, one of the things I think for me that really has helped is uh, I echo what you say about um, that no problem is unsolvable. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're easy choices. Um, I've had a friend that's had to declare bankruptcy, but she's bounced back really well. Uh, so do, I think knowing that... Um, like you said, Thomas, people get through it. And for me, it's, I get scared when, you know, I may know that there's a solution, but I don't know what the solution is. So doing my homework and really getting 
sort of knowing what it is that I don't know and then finding the people that do know um, and then creating a plan. And I think creating a plan can really help that rumination so that I feel like I've got something um, to stand on in a way. Uh, and, uh, and, and somehow it's hard, but reframe it that it, it's not your fault. I mean, even though I took the action and spent the money, this is still a symptom of a condition. So being able to recognize uh, and have that self-compassion that this is, it's, it's like expecting someone who, um, you know, has an amputated leg and you wouldn't expect them to walk the same as someone that has two legs. So for me, um, money is a, a issue that I need to attend to. And if I've made, uh, if I've made poor choices, often it's been driven by the illness. So understanding that can take a little bit of the shame away and um, help me take steps. Because I think shame can sometimes constrict us from really wanting to. And just in terms of, thank you for sharing that, just in terms of the kind of self-compassion as well related to that, yeah. A lot of it, it is impulsive, you know, you, maybe you think it's a really good idea and you're going to make a big business. So just being kind to yourself that actually it's, it's not, um, it's not a good fault. And also just, again, just for a bit of kindness to yourself, self-compassion. Um, like I said, often actually, I think what drives this impulsive spending is coming from a nice place and it's actually done for really nice reasons and kind reasons. That might be to better your family's financial situation. It might be just to help people out complete strangers out um, or it might just be to look nice so you know it's not it's you're trying to do something to kind of better you and other people's life you know so just be kind to yourself that it's okay and you didn't necessarily want you know didn't intend for it to go that far it's not thank you both for sharing that and um i think that was a really nice note to kind of wrap up on about how to move from this you know how to acknowledge the reality of what can sometimes be a very difficult and challenging uh problem for many people and just how to move from amorphous or excessive anxiety to something realistic and practical and, and, and grounded in that compassion and um, hope and positivity that we, that we really love to, um, to move people towards here. So with the time that we have left, I'm going to um, move through some resources. Uh, we have shared in the Google Doc that Laura has dropped in the chat um all of the links and resources that we've talked about today so um, don't worry about writing them all down right now you can access them um, online after the session as long as you keep that link um, i might ask thomas to quickly talk through some of these uh resources that he has um, included so this is it yeah, so this, this is um, a collaboration between a UK bank and a mental health charity, which has set up a specific kind of financial advice and website about money and mental health. So there's some various things here. It is UK focused, so a lot of the stuff around kind of um, welfare budgets, uh, you know, welfare, that kind of thing is quite UK specific, but it does have some kind of tips around money and mental health, which might be helpful. Um, and then there's this, this is kind of, this is the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. So Martin Lewis, who's a financial journalist, he set this up um, because he was so interested in the impact of money and mental health and they produce loads of reports. So this is more for kind of, I guess, for um, 
for people kind of working in the area maybe, but there, there's some really interesting reports about money and mental health and there's um, there's lots of stories as well. So it's just a really good resource and they're, you know, they do some really good stuff in the UK. You know, they actually got a change in law just last week where they've changed the wording on debt letters when you're behind on debt to make them less threatening. Um, so yeah, there's some useful resources on there. Uh, yeah, that's just the Twitter poll I did earlier, um, did a, a few weeks ago um, about whether it makes it easier to spend technology. So I thought I'd just share that. Uh, yeah, so that, if you just sort of Google Icebox, um, it's this kind of add-on app you can install to add it onto your browser, replaces, a, replaces your basket with an Icebox, put it on ice. It's a nice idea, I just have And these are the mindfulness exercises that we've recorded. So they're, um, they're free for anyone to use. There's like 22 different ones. We've got um, some exercises around compassion as well, and some stuff from acceptance commitment therapy. And we've got some videos of our um, former service users talking about how mindfulness has helped them personally as well. So just, yeah, hope, they, hope you find that helpful. Great, thank you. Um, this is a Canada-specific resource. Um, unfortunately, we can't provide uh, financial counselling resources specific to every location, but um, the Canadian government does recommend a couple of um, places where you can find non-profit um, credit counselling, if that's something that will support you in managing your financial situation. Um, we have a bunch of CRESPD developed resources specific to money. Um, we have a video with Victoria Maxwell in it talking a bit more about how some of these strategies support her in her everyday life. Um, and we also uh, have resources contained in the Bipolar Wellness Centre, which is, if you've seen the old version, this is new and revamped with lots of additional information added. Um, and we have a, a dedicated section about money where we get into a lot more detail about some of these practical tips. We also have the CRESPD quality of life tool, which allows you to measure how you're doing across a range of areas. And this can be really useful for checking in to see what areas you might need some extra support. Um, and it can also help you test out the impact on your well-being of any of these tips that you do try. We have our CRESPD academic website, which is where you can stay in the loop about research projects we're currently conducting. Um, so you can sign up for our newsletter here. Um, we have one study open at the moment um, about bipolar disorder and use of psilocybin, uh, which are interested. You can also find information about on the CRESPD website. Our next TalkBD event will be on November 9th. It will be talking about exercise for young people living with bipolar disorder with Dr. Benjamin Goldstein. So please do tune into that one if that's of any interest to you. And that will be at 12 p.m. Pacific time on November. Um, previous TalkBD events are all stored on our website, talkbd.live. And it's also the place where you can submit questions in advance. You can also see them on our Facebook page. We would really like to learn more about how this event is helping you um, manage your mental health and well-being, and um, how we can improve for future. Um, so we also have a link to a survey that you can do after the event, and we'd really appreciate any feedback. Um, we'd like to thank everyone who's funding our work and all of our partner organizations who have helped out with this event. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our work or the work of our partner organizations, you can follow us across a range of social media platforms.
Um, so a massive thank you to everyone who attended and shared questions and to our presenters, Tom and Victoria, for their expertise and experiences. Um, until next time, stay healthy and well, and thank you for joining us. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Take care. Bye, Emma. Bye, Thomas. Bye. Thanks for everyone joining. Bye.